0: Well, if you're still here, please turn back just a little bit in your Bibles to the book of Romans, and we will pick up with Romans chapter 7. We will be looking at verses 1 through 6 this evening. Hear again the word of God Almighty. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, that law, So that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let us pray. Almighty God, we seek your help. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, that he would open our hearts to hear your word, that he would enliven us and quicken us, that he would give us understanding, that you would bless, O God, the preaching of your word and the hearing of it, that we, O Lord, would believe and that by believing would be saved by it. Help us, O God, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, previously throughout chapter six, we saw how the apostle described our new life in Christ in terms of death and resurrection and in terms of being freed from one master to serve another master. So we died to sin in order that we may live to righteousness in the first instance, and we were set free from sin in order that we may serve righteousness in the second instance. Here in this passage that we have just read, he speaks of our newness of life in Christ in terms of marriage. Once we were bound to the law of sin... In the same way that a wife was bound to the law of her husband. But we have died to sin, therefore we are free from its law. And, says Paul, we are free to marry another. Now we're going to explain this under three points. And the first is that there are three rules. Three rules or three principles on which the apostle bases his argument. So verses 1 through 3, we see three rules. The first rule is this. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. You see that right there in verse 1. Very simply, he is saying that the law has power and authority over you while you live. And by a good and necessary inference from that, we realize that the law no longer has a power and authority over you once you're dead. The law pertains to you As you are alive. Now, the second rule is that a wife is under the law of her husband as long as he lives. Paul says in verse 2: for if the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives, and he continues, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband husband <clears throat> so he's saying that just as a man is bound to the law until he dies and is freed when from that law when he himself dies so also a wife is bound to the law of her husband until he dies and then she is freed from that law when he dies so so far we have two rules the law has dominion over you as long as you live Secondly, the wife is under the law of her husband as long as he lives. Thirdly, once freed from marriage by the death of her husband, a woman is free to remarry. Once freed from the death from the marriage by the death of her husband, a woman is free to remarry. He says this in verse three. So then. If while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. I want you to think, for example, of Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Remember, Abigail was married to a man named Nabal, and foolish is his name, and foolish as he is as he does, right? But he was a wicked man, and the moment that Nabal died, Abigail was free to marry David. And that's exactly what happened in the story, again, 1 Samuel 25. Abigail was freed from the law of Nabal and free to marry David because Nabal had died. Now, we will seek to apply these three rules as we go forward to the apostles' metaphor of marriage, but before we do, I want to take just a moment and consider what this is saying about marriage. Now, it's obvious that Paul is saying that a wife is free when her husband dies, and she is bound to him as long as he lives, and he's simply demonstrating or or, uh, repeating the axiom that is known to all mankind. These were laws that were understood not only by the Jews, but these were laws that were pretty much universally understood. Not always universally practiced, mind you, but in the Roman Empire and in the Greco-Roman world, marriage by law was to be monogamous, and it was only to be torn asunder by death of one or the other parties. Now, we know that the apostle is not in this instance telling us of every occasion by which a marriage can be severed, right? We know from Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus says that the case of adultery or sexual immorality um, can result in a lawful divorce. Our standards say that in the case of adultery, the innocent party may sue for a divorce and then remarry as if the offending party were dead. Now, there's some background to that in the law of God, what is the penalty in the law under, you know, under Moses? What would have been the penalty for an adulterer or an adulteress? It would have been death, right? So, so God is saying to an innocent party in a marriage in which the, the guilty party commits adultery, you may consider them as dead. You are freed from them if you get a lawful divorce. The Apostle Paul also mentions what we would call another reason that one may divorce, and that's abandonment. Right? Now this is, for instance, you have uh, two um, people married and one spouse leaves and cannot be found or brought back. The way our standards describe it is such, a, such willful abandonment as can nowise be remedied by the church or the state. In other words, someone leaves their spouse and they won't come back that person is, practically speaking, dead to that spouse, aren't they? They're not there providing their marital duties. They're not there um, having uh, marriage. So it's as if they are dead. All right, so just I want to, we're not having a sermon here on human marriage per se, but I want you to know that the apostle is merely pointing out these general principles that govern marriage, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't admit to any exceptions. All right. All right. So we've seen the three rules. Let's talk now about two marriages. This is our second point. And this begins in verse four, two marriages. So for the sake of the apostles metaphor, we must consider ourselves as wives in this story. In this metaphor, Um, being first of all married to sin, and then second of all married to Christ. So our first marriage was to sin, and we were bound for life to submit to that rule, to the rule of sin. Sin was our husband. How did sin become our husband? Well, when we got attracted to the bad boy, and we ran off with him, and got, went to Vegas, and, and got hitched up with him. Well, really how it happened is it began in Adam's fall, right? And we were, in the same way it says that we were sold unto sin, and we were sold into slavery, slaves of sin, Likewise, we were married to sin. Now, what the apostle is doing here is he's using various ways to describe the union or the relationship that we have with things. I want you to just think for a moment about some of these unions or, or close relations that are in the Bible. When the Lord God made the first man, he made him a body from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into him and made him a life a living spirit. So a man is a union of a body and a soul. Now in one sense his body is one thing and his soul is another, but really he's one man. Shortly after that the Lord God brought the man a woman and the man and the woman joined together. She was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She was his own body. Now really they were two people, but in marriage they were united, They became one. There are other kinds of union that are discussed in the Bible. For instance, Jesus Christ is God, right? But he is also man. He has a divine nature and a human nature, but there's only one Jesus Christ. He is one person who has two natures. So there's a union there of those two natures. Another union that we've discussed some in the book of Romans is the union of believers with Jesus Christ. Right? When we believe in him, then we are united to him. We become one with him. Now we're still individuals and he's still an individual, right? We are sinners and he's the savior, but we become legally and spiritually united to him almost like a marriage. We are his and he is ours. His benefits come to us. Our sins go to him. And then, of course, one more union we can talk about. And I'm going to stop with the examples after this one, honey. One more more instance of union that we see is what we call the communion of the saints. All Christians, all genuine believers, those who are united to Christ as our head, are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we have union with one another so that We all are many members of one body. One body of all Christians at all times and in all places. So this is why the apostle is using this concept of marriage, because it speaks to that union, that bond. And what he wants to say is that our relationship with sin was such that it was bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. It was a part of us from the fall onwards. And every time we participated in sin, more and more we walked arm in arm with sin. And we dwelt with sin, much like a married couple would dwell together, and we obeyed sin much like the wife in the Apostle's description in verse 2. Alright, so our first marriage is to sin, and when we were married to sin, we were subject to the law of sin in exactly the same way that a woman is subject to the law of her husband, meaning that the law pertaining to her husband. The law that says she cannot part from him until he dies. We were married to sin and subject to the law that governs that relationship. Meaning, sin had legal authority over us. But our second marriage, the one spoken of here in chapter 7, verse 4, is to Christ. Christ. Paul says that you died that you may be married to another, and then he clarifies, to him who was raised from the dead. So the purpose of our death, which by the way, we'll discuss that in a moment, how that took place, but the purpose of that death is so that we ourselves could be married to another. It was legally clearing the way, severing the old relationship, and making room for a new one, so that... Under the law, spiritually speaking, we are not adulteresses by being married to Christ. Rather, we lawfully broke away from sin and engaged marriage with Christ. Let's consider first then how it is that we were freed to marry Christ, and then we'll look secondly at why we were freed to marry Christ. First of all, we were freed to marry him when we became dead to the law. This is to say that he delivered us from the law of sin. So when he says that we died to the law, two things I want you to notice here. One is the law didn't die. We died. Secondly, he's not necessarily talking about the law as in God's commandments, but rather the law of sin, much like the law of the husband. Right? The husband, The law of the husband meant that the woman could not marry another while he was alive. So the law of sin here is that says that we can't get away from sin until we die. But then comes Christ, and in his death, we died. And that frees us from the law of sin. Notice also that it's interesting, but it is also we, us, who are married to another. So we are both those who have died and those who are remarried. One and the same How can this be? This is because our death was through the body of Christ. In other words, you did not die on the cross for the sins that you committed. You did not die the death that you deserve. Jesus Christ actually died, but you were counted in him because you are united with him by faith. All right, so our death took place in the death of Jesus Christ. So that takes care of half the problem. That's how it is we could die to sin. But how is it then, having died, we're still around to get married? Well, the other side of it is Jesus did not stay dead. He was raised from the dead. And so we too, being in him, were raised from the dead in order that we might walk in newness of life. So then, that means we died in Christ, and when Christ is resurrected, we're resurrected in him. Now we have died to sin, free from that marriage, and we are now ready and free to marry Christ. Therefore, just as we died in him, we are also raised with him. Now, the reason that we were married to Christ, it says this, that we should bear fruit to God in verse 4. Previously, we had seen that the fruit of serving sin was shameful things and things that end in death. But the fruit of serving God is righteousness unto holiness, the end of which is life. So you see a very stark contrast, and it's a similar thing here. Marriage, like the slavery analogy, bears fruit. So let's look now at two different results, okay? So we have seen three rules. We have seen two marriages, first to sin, then to Christ, which was accomplished by the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our death and resurrection in him. We come now to two results from these two different marriages, Now, maybe at this point, before we press on, I want to just maybe, there's a caution in using this metaphor of marriage for the believers. So before we get to the differing results, let me make a caution here in the Apostles' analogy. It is not exactly the case that each of you as an individual is Jesus' wife, okay? In other words, Jesus does not have millions and billions of wives. Rather, Christ has one wife, the church. Right, all of those who believe in Him, and you are a member of that body. And this is actually indicated here in the text. If you, if you just look quickly from verses four downwards, um, and you look at the pronouns, okay, uh, starting in, in verse four, it's the second, uh, yeah, second pl- person plural, you all. You have become dead to the law. You all may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And at the end of verse 4, that we, okay, now he's included himself in that. He's speaking now of all Christians in order that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, and he continues, and the rest of the passage is all we, but now we have been delivered from the law. So that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So just to keep that in mind, sometimes um, Christians have been confused by the marriage metaphor, how, how it is that Christians are the bride of Christ. But you are not the wife of Jesus all by yourself, but rather you being a part of a body, the church, are the bride of Christ. So we are the bride of Christ. All right, now let's look at two different results that these marriages bear. First, let's look at the fruits of marriage to sin. Verse 5 says, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now, as is often the case in Romans, the word flesh here refers to man in his fallen condition, right? The flesh is man without the saving grace and saving work of God the Holy Spirit. So, man as married to sin is man in the flesh. And he speaks now of sinful passions. These passions refer to the inclinations of our hearts and our desires towards things that God opposes. Okay, You have these passions, these desires for things which are contrary to God. Now, in your New King James Version, it says that these passions were, quote, aroused by the law. Uh, This term aroused is actually not in the original. They add it to try and clarify the meaning of the sentence. But here's what it says originally, literally. The sinful passions which were working through the law. So the way the New King James translates, it makes it sound like the um, law arouses the sinful passions. But more literally, it's just simply the sinful passions themselves were working through the law. It's still a little bit confusing what that means, and there are really two ways we could take this. The first is the sinful passions working through the law could be referring to that that law we just talked about, the law of sin, the law which bound us to sin. And so since we are bound to sin, right, sin has dominion over us, sin has rule over us. Therefore, we obeyed it. In our sinful passions, we, we did according to that law. So that while we were married to sin, our sinful passions simply went along with the law of sin. We did what our husband wanted us to do. And it could also refer to the way that the sinful passions of fallen man, man in his flesh, man without the Holy Spirit, how they respond to the law of God. In other words, it could be this. Um, Because our passions are sinful, right, we're in the flesh, we have not the Holy Spirit, we don't have the saving grace of God, the law of God, which is good and holy, and it's meant to produce righteousness, it actually provokes sin in us. Now, Paul will eventually take up this very topic, and so there might be a good reason to accept this version, this interpretation of it. Later on in chapter 7, we will talk about it. But the the notion is that the law, the good law, comes along, but sinful men, inclined by their sinfulness, following their own desires, don't respond to the law in the way that they should, but rather respond sinfully. This would be sort of like, um, okay, lilacs and uh, garden flocks and a few other flowers. On a nice, hot, sunny day when the sun hits them, they smell really, you can really smell them very good. But if that same sunshine and that same sunny day shines on a, I don't know, a garbage dump, what kind of smells do you get? All right, so you can think of the lilacs or the garden flocks or the other pretty flowers as the renewed nature, as, as the man having grace and the Holy Spirit. When the law of God comes to him, it produces good and, and fragrant and life-giving things, That same law, the sun in this case, when it shines on the garbage, gives foul odors and bad fumes. And I think that's probably the better way to take that term. Nevertheless, don't miss where we're at, that the fruit of being married to sin is not good fruit. It's producing things that lead to death. Sinful passions are working in those who are married to sin, and they produce, Paul says, the fruit to death. This is very similar to what we saw with regard to slavery. Slavery to sin produces shameful things. Its fruit is death, right? Its fruit is actually more wickedness, lawlessness and lawlessness, and ends in death. So too with marriage to sin, on the other hand, consider for a moment the fruits of marriage to Christ. And this is in verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. Right? So we died to sin. So that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So once we walked arm in arm with sin, we were one with it. We were in wedded bliss. We said, till death do us part to sin. But then God delivered us from that law when we died with Christ. As a result, we are free to marry Christ. And as a result of that, we can serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the latter. So just as our former marriage inclined us towards a way of life, it came with it certain obligations and certain character and certain behaviors and speech and thoughts, etc. So, too, our new marriage brings about newness of the Spirit. The newness of the Spirit here in verse 6 refers simply to the renewed life by the power of God the Holy Spirit. It refers to the grace of God, right? The merits of Jesus Christ being applied to believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's that same Holy Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead, right, and raises us up to walk in newness of life with him. The same Holy Spirit now helps us to serve in newness. This, this means that we now, being married to Jesus, have both the desire and the ability to respond the right way to the law of God. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah spoke of. He said this in Jeremiah 31, I will, The Lord says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you see what Jeremiah is describing is the work of the Holy Spirit putting God's law in the minds and hearts of his people so that they can serve in what Paul calls the newness of life. Now this is contrasted with what Paul calls the oldness of letters. Now, a law, even a good law, can only command you, right? It cannot by itself empower you to obey it. It cannot by yourself make you desire to obey it. So, it's like this. What good are the letters on a page if you have no heart to obey them or you have no power to obey them? That's the oldness of letter, meaning... It's there it's written down but apart from God the Holy Spirit apart from God's grace given my sinful passions and my sinful inclinations it can't bring me life and it can't make me righteous. So it's the difference then between the difference between serving in newness of spirit and oldness of letter is God the Holy Spirit working genuine faith and obedience so that you can and want to believe and obey what God says. All right, so we have seen that God delivers us from marriage to sin in order that we may be married to Christ and that being joined to Christ, we can produce fruit. And don't miss, in Paul's metaphor here, there's this notion of uh, you have a husband and wife and their fruit is what? Offspring, Right? And marriage to sin brings about sinful offspring. Not really, but in the metaphor, right? So the fruits of the marriage of sin and man is more sin and death. And the fruits, the offspring, as it were, of the marriage to Christ is righteousness and holiness and eventually life. But God has now delivered us from sin and brought us to Christ, We are free to marry him. We are free. We are not bound by that law anymore. And I want to conclude with this. Thinking back to the first three rules, particularly the reminder that a husband and wife are bound, as we like to say, as long as they both shall live. And you understand that, for instance, Paul speaks of the wife being bound to the law of her husband, and that's because it supports the metaphor he's building, right? But, but what is true for the wife is also true for a husband. It, we mustn't conclude, for instance, that, well, Paul says that a wife is bound. It means that a husband is not bound. That's not the point, but it really means that as long as they both shall live, they are bound together, But now let's take that rule and apply it to our marriage with Christ. So if Christ is our husband, we are bound to him and he is bound to us as long as we both shall live. How long will Christ live? Well, Christ is risen from the dead and he lives forevermore. He will never die. Therefore, we are bound to him forever. And he is bound to us forever. The only way we could escape it would be if we were to die. But because he has risen from the dead and we believe in him, we have everlasting life and we will live forever. So you see, we have now a bond with him that will never end. So the the loyalty that we owe to Christ, the, the support that we can expect from Christ is everlasting. He will forever be the church's husband. All right, let us pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you, Father, for freeing us from the tyranny of sin, a, a tyranny, Lord, that uh, at once we thought was freedom and proved only to be death. Thank you, Lord God, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have been freed from all the things from which we could not free ourselves. We pray, O oh God, you would forgive us, that you would help us more and more, Draw near to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would see the bond that we have with him and that we would honor and keep that and that we, Lord, would seek his trust, or excuse me, seek his support, seek his graces, seek his help. We ask, oh Lord, you would do these things for us, your people, in Jesus' name, amen.